a deep dive into the NRA's financial situation, and an interview with Mike Wilber of the Active Self-Protection Podcast. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can sign up for a membership today. It's $10 a month, $100 a year. So if you buy the annual membership, you get two months free. Uh, and if you do that, you'll get this podcast a day early. You'll also get access to exclusive posts like the one that uh, my friend Jake Fogelman here, our contributing writer, has written this week about the NRA's finances, about their uh, safety and training program and the cuts that have been made to that. So, you, you know, if you remember, you can read that whole thing. Uh, but before we get into that piece, uh, we actually are doing a deep dive on the NRA's finances as a whole uh, this week. I was uh, at the NRA's oversight meetings, the members meeting and the board meeting earlier this month in Charlotte, North Carolina. And obtained their uh, consolidated financial reports, which show the financials for all, well, all seven of the groups uh, that make up the NRA. There's actually uh, seven individual entities that the NRA has for, for various reasons, you know, like the, there's the membership group, which is what you, that's a 501c4. It's when you actually buy a membership, that's what you're joining is, is the C4. Uh, but they also have several, uh, 501c3 uh, foundations, uh, the charities, so the, the NRA Foundation, uh, where a lot of people send their money uh, to support the safety and training programs, for instance, right, Jake? Um, and then you you also right. have uh, a number of political organizations. You have uh, ILA, and you have um, the the Political Victory Fund, which is a PAC, and then you have the Victory Fund, which is a super PAC. So all of these things are, are mashed together in, in the financial report that they give out to members uh, or that they give out at the members meeting or in front of the members meeting, I guess, on a little table they they do that. Uh, so I have the one from this year and also the one from the 2019 meeting, which covers, uh, so this year's covers 2020 and 2019. And the one from the 2019 meeting covers 2018 and 2017. So we have quite a lot of information on the NRI's finances that go back uh, for several years uh, and that give us quite a lot of insight into how they're doing financially uh, with everything that's going on, all the internal turmoil, the legal troubles that they're facing, the, the, the presidential election that just happened. And so we've done now a series of stories. Uh, the first two are, are in front of the paywall, but the third one is a member exclusive that uh, Jake wrote uh, about the safety and training program. Actually, Jake, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, insight into what you saw when you looked at the the finances for the safety and training aspect of the NRA? Sure. Yeah. So I um, poured over all the documents and looked at uh, where all the funds were going. Um, we saw that their revenues increased this year. So we wanted to take a look at where that money was being allocated. Uh, and when we got to the safety and training portion, we noticed that there were significant cuts in spending to their safety and training programs, um, like 50% this year from 2019 um, to 2020. And, you know, some of that can be explained by the COVID-19 pandemic, right. obviously. And that, the NRA, um, you know, the NRA people did can't gather in person. Uh, effectively say that most of their 
revenue downfalls. They've increased revenue a bit in 2020 over 2019, but it's it's down when you look back to 2018 or 2016, some of these previous election years. Um, and, and so are their dues. Their dues are down. Their contributions are down. Everything is really down, has been cut significantly over the last you know four years here. Uh, and they, they did say that COVID was a big part of, of that. Uh, and I think that's probably a legitimate point. They weren't able to do their annual meeting the last two years, which is a big fundraising event for them. They haven't been able to do a lot of their Friends of the NRA dinners, which are other you know big fundraising events for them. Um, but obviously, there's other factors going on as well, including the internal turmoil, the accusations of corruption against executives like Wayne LaPierre, um, you know, who's accused of basically funneling NRA money towards his own personal expenses to the tune of, you know, millions of dollars. And so there's probably a lot of factors as to why their right. spending is down. But, but I mean, certainly cutting one of the biggest areas of what the NRA is known for, you know, the, the safety and training program where they certify trainers, that's a big, that's a pretty big deal. Absolutely. You know, they were founded as a marksmanship organization. They got their start training people how to shoot, uh, bringing the shooting sports to America's youth. They introduced college shooting teams, for example, they taught Boy Scouts how to shoot. So it is just interesting to see a market decline in spending on that kind of stuff, you know, the last few years. And that's like, to your point that there's other factors going on. We see this cut in spending dating back to 2017, the last report we have our hands on. Uh, from 2017 to 2018, they cut spending something like $10 million for safety and training. And that's obviously way before the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's there's a lot more going on here than just pandemic yeah, disruptions. Yeah, and they've continued to, to cut ever since then. Uh, it's really kind of a shadow of what it was right. four years ago. And um, I think that's pretty significant because the NRA derives a lot of goodwill from its training program and from the efforts it does with with educating people sure. on the safe use of firearms. I mean, I'm a, I'm a certified NRA instructor myself for basic pistol, and it's the most popular program in the country. It's the most uh, expansive gun training program, probably in the history of the United States, frankly. And uh, seeing it get cut down sure. like this is interesting in how it could have an impact on its uh, membership numbers, which again are also uh, down. They've really been, from what we know publicly, yeah, at this they're point, declining, they've been yep. declining for, well, I guess from what we know publicly, from what they say, because again, these, these numbers are uh, not in the report as far as how many members they have. That's not included in this report. That's, that's something that they only give out selectively. Um, and there's no, there hasn't really been a way of uh, verifying it through public records to this point. But they, they started saying they had 5 million members back in 2013 for the first time. And ever since then, uh, they've, it, they've kind of continued to say 5 million members. Uh, occasionally they'll say five and a half. Uh, when Wayne LaPierre testified in court during the, the bankruptcy trial, which is another thing that, that obviously may have depressed membership dues, they filed for bankruptcy. Um, even though as this... 2020 report sure. indicates they actually are in really good financial shape compared to what they were in 2016 as far as like their balance sheet goes. They're sp they had a $54 million surplus sure. in, in 2020 compared to uh, like a $50 million, uh, you know, negative balance at the end of 2016. So, you know, they right. 
It's just never a good PR for prospective right. members. And, and so they, they obviously weren't right? financially insolvent uh, in 2020 by any means. Uh, but they did declare bankruptcy and that probably had a big effect on people's, you know, interest in joining the organization uh, potentially. And so, uh, you know, you, you saw that as one factor. I would say as well that the, uh, they, they should have more members now. That would be logical just by population growth. But when Wayne testified in the bankruptcy trial, which, which failed, by the way, that they tried to file bankruptcy. They were not allowed to file bankruptcy. Uh, yeah, it, yeah was kind of, it was basically a more of a legal strategy to try and avoid the New York corruption case or try to um, get, get themselves on more favorable ground in that case. Uh, it didn't work. Um, and, but in the, in the testimony for that case, LaPierre himself said that they're, they're close to 4.9 million today. Uh, or at least when he testified in uh, earlier in uh, this year, it was maybe late last year. But either way, like as you could see, five million starting in 2013, about five million still today. That's not a good trajectory. <laughs> that's just flat. Um, right. And so it's concerning to the long term health of the organization to not see it grow, at least even at just the rate that the population has grown. And especially in light of, you know, all the new people that are purchasing guns and the way that guns have been so political in the last few years. Obviously, they're always political, but they've really been ramped up in terms of being front and center um, to see stagnation in membership growth where you would expect, you know, all these people are buying guns, especially new gun owners. New gun owners need to get training. Who provides training? People like the NRA. You would expect to see an increase in membership, but it is I think it is very telling that it it's stagnant. Over, yeah. And you, you know, see this in the membership dues as well, because they're they're down significantly from what they were the last presidential right. cycle or the last election cycle in 2018. So, um, because we do have, we don't have access to the consolidated reports for, for 2016, but we do have the, just the 501c3, just the membership organization files, uh, public, uh, tax records every year. And, and they do have some of the same numbers, but just, just for that one organization. So, um, actually, you know, when you compare, right like 2020's consolidated report to 2016's report for just the membership organization, uh, you would think that the that 2016 report would tend to under uh, sell how, how much, you know, resources and spending the NRA as, as an entire organization is doing, but you still see a massive drop off. There was uh, something like, it was 40% less uh, spent on political uh, expenses in 2020 than in 2016 when you compare those two reports, even with that limitation. So they're, they're spending their dues there. I mean, their overall spending from 2016 to 2020 fell like a hundred million dollars. Um, <clears throat> just from the, right. from going from that 2016 membership organization report to the consolidated report, you know, so the, the, Presumably, if you if that 2016 report, if we had access to the one that was that included the other entities uh, that are in the 2020 report, it would be an even bigger drop off uh, would be my guess. Uh, we don't know for sure. Right. But so presumably, it's yeah. not good. It's not <laughs> they're not good signs. And, you know, speaking right. of that bankruptcy too, one place where they have 
not cut spending uh, it, it is in their legal fees. Uh, now, they only break this down to legal audit and tax expenses as a category, uh, but it seems pretty clear that most of the spending, I think it's fair to assume, that has you know, risen dramatically in, the, in that category is due to the legal fees that they're paying uh, for the failed bankruptcy, for the uh, New York lawsuit. Now, obviously, some of this money is also being paid towards their legal activism, so you know things like the the Supreme Court case right. that's be, that's uh, currently being heard uh, was brought by their New York affiliate, uh, the New York Rifle and Pistol Association, and whose whose uh, president is on the board of the NRA. But so some of that money does go towards uh, activism in, in the legal space, but the vast majority of it, and they they spent forty six million dollars in twenty twenty on that category, that legal costs category. Uh, and 42 million of that went towards administrative legal costs, which are presumably the costs for defending right. themselves in New York, filing the bankruptcy. Um, they're also right. suing Ackerman McQueen. So that's another legal yep, battle that's that they're going to be involved in. Probably a lot of costs uh, are coming from. Uh, and then about the 4 million that's left, that was, uh, most of that went towards legislative uh, legal costs, so the more activist side of things, like the Supreme Court case. And so, you sure. know, the, it's pretty remarkable that they managed to stay in the black in 2020, honestly. Um, but it came at the cost of all of these other programs. Political spending was way down. The the safety and training uh, programs were way down, uh, and the Member services, member way, services you know, was just way down. across the board. If you look through the report and the reports published on the, the, the reload. So you can go uh, look at all these various reports yourself if you, if you want to, because really there's, there's a lot in there. I mean, the NRA is a big organization, which I, I think is another point. Like they're still, even with all this, they're still the biggest organization out there in guns on either side of the debate. And really they're still much larger than uh, a number of their uh, well-known competitors in the gun rights or I don't know if competitors is the right word, but like compatriarchs in uh, the gun rights space, you know, FPC or GOA or SF, SAF, they're, they're bigger sure. than all of them, probably all of them combined, honestly. So you right. still have this hulking organization. It's just that it's, it's shrinking at the same time, which is a, frankly, is a big problem if you're a gun rights uh, supporter because yeah it's yeah i was gonna say especially you pointed out the other groups the nra is known for not just being the biggest federal organization but all of their state affiliates they're really the biggest organization out there that has reach into every state house and does yeah. that kind of work on the ground too and to see them gut spending on that kind of activity and as their legal costs mount it is as you said concerning yeah. if you're a gun rights supporter and this, uh, the uh, you know, that kind of work. I do think that their explanation of COVID being a big problem is legitimate and does co come into play potentially with some of the spending as well. Like it's difficult to spend as much money on sure. training and education if you can't hold the classes uh, at the same capacity that you used to yeah, be able no to do events. it. So sure. it's certainly possible that that'll rebound uh, once COVID you know, goes away, hopefully very soon. We're all very 
uh, don't want to <laughs> be living with COVID at the levels that it is anymore. And, uh, you know, maybe once things, I mean, things are already have been opening up obviously in a lot of places, but, but, uh, perhaps there'll be a rebound once that's not as much of a concern anymore. But, you know, of course they fired a lot of people. They fired a lot of people in safety and training. They fired a lot of people in every sector of the NRA. So, uh, I don't believe they've hired back all of them or even most of them at this point. So if they are planning to ramp back up once, uh, things open back up again, I think you're going to see, uh, it's going to take some time and, you know, I don't know. They're in, it's, it's an interesting situation because they're in better financial shape technically, because again, they ran a surplus, but they did it by cutting everything except for, except for the one area sure. of legal expenses, which just skyrocketed. I mean, they spent almost $125 million on that category of legal costs, uh, you know, audit and taxes over the past three years. Uh, you know, 2018 to 2020. And that that's right. way out of line with what it was in 2017. The increases are dramatic. And so, you know, it's, I talked to uh, Ryan Mittendorf from Ohio State University. He's a accounting professor there. And, you know, I thought he, he had a, his point was pretty salient. It's like, they're, it's it's interesting. It's a weird mix because like their finance, their financial position got stronger in 2020, but really only because they cut so much of their core offerings, you know, the political side, the safety uh, and training right. side. And how how long are members going to stick around and keep paying into the NRA if they're not getting those benefits from it? Uh, and I think that's a very legitimate question. So if the NRA right. is planning to turn this around and start boosting these programs again, they're probably going to need to do it soon. Yeah, I thought that quote that you included at the end from Professor Mittendorf was telling. Because um, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, the fact that their membership is stagnating or you know possibly declining, we don't know for sure. But you know it doesn't bode well for that if you're going to be cutting member services just to you know stay above red. Yeah. So. We're going to have to keep a close eye on all of this, of course. And and it's the other thing, too. Like, the reload is the only place you're going to find this information. Because this is this was an exclusive, us obtaining yeah. this this document uh, in kind of the most ridiculous way possible. Because these documents are freely handed out at the members' meeting. Anyway, they have they just have them on a the table, and they're meant for people to take and review. Like, it's, it's meant uh, to – it's their annual report, basically. And, and so it's not like – I had to do some sort of super sleuthing to get this information. It's just that I was the only reporter there. So this is exclusive to the reload right. because I was there and no one else yeah. was. There was a uh, a Twitter user. I wish I could give them credit that told you that it was literally an exclusive because you were the only journalist there. And then you're the only one to break the story. And I thought that was kind of humorous. And, and Yeah, but it, you know, even more so, I think it's an uh, indictment of the rest of the media. Like, they're they're very happy, I think, oftentimes to react to things that are happening at the NRA uh, and, and write stories on that. But there, no one is really doing much in terms of actually putting in the work to report on the NRA. I mean, you know, it's great for us, I guess, at the reload because, you know, if that's what you want, if that's what you're interested in, informed, exclusive reporting on the NRA, this is going to be one of the only places you're going to get it, especially if you're looking for like hard news reporting. 
which is, you know, what we specialize in, uh, and, and less so the, you know, opinions on the NRA, you know, I'll give, we'll, we'll give analysis. We'll, we'll look into, you know, talk about trends and, and all that, but we focus on hard news reporting here. And, uh, you know, I don't know that there's anyone else that you can turn to if this, if you want in depth, like accurate, informed reporting on what's happening at the NRA. Uh, and, and it's crazy because it's one of the most powerful political organizations in the country. It's one of the biggest at 5 million dues paying members, yep. you know, even with the issues that we talked about over right. stagnation of the membership, it, it's still like uh, most political organizations would kill to have that kind of dues paying membership. This is again, like Absolutely. that's where, that's what really sets the NRA apart a lot. You know, I talked about this a bit in when I wrote uh, that piece for the Atlantic recently, but the dues paying part of dues paying members is extremely important. It's very, you know, you can go out and buy a list of 10 million people that you can put on your, your newsletter list for, uh, you know, and, and say that they're, you know, this is, you'll often hear like every town talk about how they have 5 million members or whatever. Um, but they don't really, they have like, Five million people who signed up for a newsletter or signed up for to uh, like them on Facebook or something that costs no, nothing and it doesn't indicate right. much of anything in terms of, you know, how active they're going to be. The NRA has five million people who at least at right. some point paid them money to be a part of the organization. Now, uh, whether those people are still giving them money today is a very different question because a lot of them are lifetime members. Right. Uh, and they don't they pay once and they don't have to pay again. Uh, and, and there's plenty of, uh, negative, uh, points to make about the numbers that the NRA is doing right now. But again, at some point, all 5 million of those people paid to be a member of the NRA. Uh, and so that's a big deal when, when it comes to politics, when it, when it comes to signaling your actual passion or intent much more so than signing up for a newsletter. So uh, I just think that's a key point yeah, to keep absolutely. in mind. And it's what makes the lack of interest from many reporters or many, I don't know, reporters, but media outlets, especially major media outlets, who could, I'm sure, afford to send somebody to Charlotte. We afforded my trip there. And we existed for less than six months um, and are not a multi-million dollar uh, media conglomerate here. So I don't think it's a lack of uh, uh, resources to send a reporter to the, to the event. It's more a lack of interest or knowledge. And so, yeah, uh, I guess the bottom line is if you want that, you should join the relay. <laughs> you should buy a membership uh, just to, to sell that point again. But um, uh, you know, there's a lot more, there's a lot more takeaways. If you go and read the pieces, there's a lot of information in there, a lot of detail about what their finances are like now and compared to what they were like a couple of years ago. So, but we have one other story yeah. that I wanted to touch on as well, uh, which mildly yeah. in implicates the NRA, uh, <laughs> Terry McAuliffe, who's the Democrat, former governor of Virginia, who is now once again, running for governor, uh, cause Virginia, which is where I where I live, uh, has a kind of weird system, kind of unique, where you you can run for governor more than one time, but you can't do it consecutively. So you can only serve one term, and then you have to leave. Uh, so that's what he did. 
But the Virginia Democratic Party, as many of you might have heard over the last couple of years, ran into some very serious issues with its top leadership uh, in the form of governor, current governor, Ralph Northam, current attorney general, who is also running for re-election now, Mark Herring. Uh, they were both found to have worn blackface, um, uh, which blackface. is a, you know, a very racist thing to do, obviously. Uh, neither resigned, and now you see Herring is running for re-election. And actually, he plays into this this story about McAuliffe as well. I'll get to that in a second. But uh, and then the lieutenant go, uh, governor um, uh, Fairfax has been accused of uh, sexual assault. So, uh, you know, not a lot of really bad things in terms of your political career, although apparently not bad enough that any of them had to resign. Uh, there were a lot of calls for them all. I was going to say, yeah, they're, well, they're still running. I, I don't know if the lieutenant governor is running again, but. Uh, and then Northam obviously can't because of the the term limit thing. Um, so they, the I guess they figured they're top of their slate. They couldn't put anyone up to, to run for governor with those accusations. I guess they're OK with the attorney general doing it. But um, so they I guess the decision was made to for Terry to run again. And um, yeah, he uh, he's actually in a very tight race with uh, challenger Glenn Youngkin. Uh, who's the Republican nominee, who's uh, an outsider. He's like a businessman type. He's never been in office before, but he's you know very wealthy and he's uh, self-funding his campaign. So he's got a lot of resources to uh, to run in the race. Um, and uh, it's a close race. You know, there's it's a couple of points in most of the polls right now. Uh, and Virginia tends, since the elections are in off year, it tends to be kind of a referendum to some degree on whoever, whichever party uh, is in power in the presidency. And right now that's obviously the Democrats. Uh, Joe right. Biden is president. His approval rating has been uh, cratering a bit here of late. Uh, you know, this summer was not a good summer for him on a number of fronts, uh, you know, from Afghanistan with yeah. withdrawal, the, the surrender pullout there went very poorly, obviously. And then COVID has uh, resurged over the summer. Um, the economy is not not recovering well. We're having a lot of inflation, so so his uh, numbers and have inflation. Been good. Um, but anyway, all that all that means is that even though Virginia has been trending more blue lately, there's a good chance that Youngkin has a shot at winning, uh, and um, right. So that's why this story is particularly relevant, I would say. Uh, so. Um, Terry McAuliffe, we obtained a video of him or unearthed a video of him. It's 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 posted online. So it's on YouTube. Um, it's on YouTube. But yeah. it's not. It was comments from 2019 at George Mason University where he was giving a speech. Uh, it was not very widely viewed before our piece, uh, but essentially he uh, attacked gun shows. He said they were the quote the worst thing we have. Uh, our gun shows and that he was uh, upset about how he, he described the situation where um, if you go into a gun show in Virginia there. Uh, so I guess just real quick, I think most people understand how gun shows actually work if you're listening to this podcast. But uh, in real life, a gun show, I mean, there's no there's nothing special about gun shows in terms of federal law. Uh Federal law, when it comes to whether or not you need to 
do a background check in order to buy a gun, it's predicated on who's selling the gun to who. So if you're a licensed dealer and you're selling a gun, it doesn't matter where it happens, whether it's at a gun show, which a lot of gun show uh, people who sell guns at gun shows are licensed dealers. They have federal licenses. Uh, they have to do a background check. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that it's being done at a back, uh, at a gun show or if they do it online or whatever else. Like it's not part of the calculation for federal law. It's just whether you're licensed or you're not licensed. If you're not licensed because you don't, you're right. not in the business of selling guns, you're perhaps just selling your, uh, you know, a one-off used gun. Uh, you don't have to get a license and you don't have to perform a background check in most states. Some states have universal background checks. And actually now, since these comments, Democrats passed, uh, took control of the state government and passed a universal background check bill in Virginia. So uh, that's what's happened since he said this. But he was complaining that if you go to a gun show, they, uh, they, they advertise on big signs that you don't have to do a background check. Now, uh, you know, I've been to a number of gun shows and I've never seen that. Uh, I, I don't know. I yeah, agree. Have you ever seen something like that at a gun show? Yeah, I don't go to gun shows often, but I've been to a couple here in Colorado and not once have I ever seen giant flashing signs saying no background checks, yeah, skip your so, background checks here. So I'm not sure where he gets that idea from. I don't as though no one's ever done anything like that anywhere in the world, but uh, that's not a common thing that I've ever uh, encountered uh, or know of people who've encountered something like that. Uh, so that was, that's kind of an exaggerated claim that he was making. But anyway, he goes on uh, after attacking gun shows. He talks about uh, another interesting bit where uh, he's describing in 2016 when he was governor or 20, yeah, 2016, there was uh, his attorney general. So Democrats have wanted to take over the state control, of the state government. They accomplished this later on in uh, this 2019. Yeah, 2019. But uh, at the time, they couldn't get it done. And so they had they had a lot of backing from Michael Bloomberg, who's a big gun control proponent. And so it seems like they perhaps maybe wanted to repay him in some way, even though they couldn't capture control of the state house. So the attorney general, Mark Herring, who's coming come up again and who is once again running for reelection despite the blackface uh, incident, he took it upon himself to unilaterally dissolve the reciprocity agreements that Virginia had with every other state. So Virginia's going you know, concealed carry permit, which I, I have one. Uh, and this directly affected me because I go to Pennsylvania pretty often where I'm originally from. But the Virginia's permit was no longer good, basically, in most other states. And no other state's permit was good in Virginia anymore when he did this. And so this was a very big deal at the time. Uh, caused a lot of outrage. It um, created a huge political backlash. And so the Republicans who controlled the legislature then were putting up a bill to uh, basically completely undo this and take away the attorney general's discretion from reciprocity agreements altogether. And that was, it looked like that was going to pass with enough support to override a veto from McAuliffe. So instead he struck a deal with Republicans where they got uh, our current law, which is that Virginia recognizes all other states permits uh, by, by law now uh, and then there was also a uh, domestic violence component uh, where if you are under a protective order for a domestic violence incident, you have to surrender your guns. 
uh, which is was not a controversial thing. But anyway, in these comments that we we found from McAuliffe, he uh, he makes two interesting claims here. One is that Herring, uh, one is he says outright that no one has ever come from any other state uh, who is permitted to carry a a firearm, a concealed you know concealed firearm, and hurt anyone in Virginia. He he says this directly in his comments, which basically completely undermines right. what Herring had done. Back in 2016. Uh, and again, Herring is running for re-election right now with McAuliffe. Uh, so I, these comments don't reflect well on him. Uh, and he said that, that doing that gave him leverage to pass this uh, this bill, which he uh, described as, as a big compromise and a big win for him and, and gun control proponents. Uh, although if you read comments from the gun control proponents at the time, uh, they did not feel that way at all, uh, and they they claimed that right. McAuliffe was making a uh, backroom deal with the NRA, uh, which is how this connects back to the NRA. And, right, um, uh, and then McAuliffe himself uh, uh, went on a uh, a bit of a rant about how the NRA has too much power, um, and that he was proud he's proud to have an F rating and wishes he could have a rating lower than F. Uh, in those comments as well, and then he, he also makes a right. weird claim about about bump stocks. Uh, he was he claimed that this was 2019, uh, like March 2019, and he claimed that nothing had been done on bump stocks after the Las Vegas mass, mass shooting, uh, which is very weird because I mean it just kind of implies that he doesn't know what's what's going on uh, with with gun laws in the country. Because right. what do you recall what happened to bump stocks in? Yes. Yeah, 2018, the uh, Trump administration yes, banned regulated them. So uh, a yeah. whole year later, he's he talking banned, about nothing The Trump got administration done. unilaterally banned the possession of bump stocks. You could not even have bump stocks anymore. It was, it was confiscation. Right. Yeah, yeah they weren't no even grandfathered. grandfathered. Yeah. So they announced that yep. in December 2018. Uh, McAuliffe makes these comments in uh, mid-March of 2019. And <laughs> a few days later, about a week later, is when the rule... To banning their possession went into effect. So like right as he's saying this is when they're being banned. So it's, McAuliffe is apparently not very uh, up to date on gun regulations in the United States either. So that, those are the interesting sure. things that came out of that that video. But people can go watch it for themselves yeah. over, over on thereload.com. Uh, we actually have, uh, yes, read the piece. And read the piece. Uh, you'll, you'll get... Um, a lot of a lot of further insight into that whole situation, but uh, we have an interview with uh, Active Self Protections uh, uh, Mike Williver, who's hosting their new podcast. Uh, talk to him a bit about uh, what they have on that podcast. It's actually really fascinating. Now I'm I'm a frequent guest on there, giving news updates, but I think the core of that podcast is really fascinating. You've you've actually listened to it too, haven't you? I have, yeah. I think it's a for anyone that's interested in the active self protection channel. I think it's fascinating. They bring on guests that were uh, subjects of these videos, people that actually survived self defense encounters, to recount their their experience. And I think it's just fascinating and it's valuable information. Yeah. yeah so we're gonna we're gonna head over to Mike now, and and hear what he has to say about it. All right, I'm here with Mike Williver of the Active Self Protection Podcast. Uh, he hosts a weekly show for the gun training channel uh, where he interviews uh, people who have been through traumatic experiences, life and death situations, and 
uh, gets their take on uh, what lessons can be uh, gleaned from their experiences. Mike, can you just give us a little bit of background about yourself? Uh, sure. I am a retired special agent with a federal agency. I guess I can name them Homeland Security Investigations, which is part of uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement under Homeland and uh, had a 25 year career, a little over 25 years there. Really enjoyed it. I want to thank all your listeners for paying my salary all that time. Uh, and now I'm happily retired and working is just as hard as I ever have on this podcast. But it's a labor of love. And it's. A oh, yeah. Um, and so what what was it that got you from uh, federal law enforcement role uh, to now a podcast host? You know, uh, John Korea, who's the owner and founder of Active Self-Protection, uh, he and I were friends at about 99 or 2000. We were neighbors. Uh, I was working for DOJ at the time, and he was uh, in the Navy. He was my downstairs neighbor. We became pretty fast friends, went to church together, and we just always stayed in touch. When he moved to Arizona, went to seminary, became a pastor. We'd visit every month or two, and and uh, coming up towards my retirement, he was kind of looking for somewhere to plug me in, and I had the idea to maybe do a podcast, compliment uh, the main channel, and we weren't really sure what the podcast was going to be about initially. Mm. Uh, and it just made sense to try to find people that have been in these sort of self-defense encounters that we feature and highlight and break down on the main channel and talk about their experience. And we decided early on that it was going to be about those people and about their story, uh, but primarily not so much about the incident itself, because that could be talked about in you know five minutes, but about all the time before and after the incident. So all the prep training, if there was any um, childhood issues, whatever might have gone into making that person who they were when that encounter began and then discuss the encounter as much as we need to, and then move on to after the encounter. Frequently, we're talking to people that have been um, defensive encounters involving a firearm. They use a firearm to defend themselves, uh, whether or not they necessarily pull the trigger. So that I think what people want to know is, okay, so what happens after the dust settles? Let's say you've won, you know, in quotes, won a gunfight. Uh, you've survived it, and the bad guy maybe has a bullet in him. What happens when the police show up? What do you do? How do you act? Do you answer questions? Do you make a statement or not? And then beyond that, talking about issues about PTSD and how it affects your home life, because no one who's ever been in a situation like that is going to be quite the same again. I think that's one of the things we want to pound home to people is don't think you're going to finish with your defensive shooting, no matter how justified it was, and go home and, and you know, have a martini and high five the wife. That's not yeah, how it works. Yeah, certainly. And uh, I think it's a really interesting idea to take, you know, what, what John does on uh, you know, the YouTube channel, the main YouTube channel for active self-protection. And we had, we had John on our podcast, uh, uh, a couple of weeks back. I'm so sorry. sorry <laughs> this is a terrible experience, but, but, uh, yeah, he gave us some more insight into how he got started in, in doing the, the narrated, uh, videos and the, the training that's come out of that. Um, but I, I think it's a really good idea, frankly, uh, to take those short, you know, 10 minute clips where he examines like a real, real life, encounter and then expand on that in, in a whole podcast episode, right? Where you can get more in depth into what really happened and the, the aftermath of it, the consequences uh, and how all of that really works when you're talking about a self-defense shooting, because there's plenty of training that comes uh, in the basic concept of how to handle a firearm. You know, I'm a certified uh, firearms instructor for basic pistol, right? Um, on how to handle right. a gun and, and how to, you know, the, the, the five uh, tech, shooting techniques for how to shoot accurately um, and, and all that. And that's great stuff and it's great uh, um, information to learn. But 
it doesn't usually touch on the realities of a real life self-defense encounter, uh, especially one that involves deadly force. Uh, and then even when you do touch on that stuff, the way that uh, active self-protection does on, on its main channel with John, uh, there often isn't uh, as much focus on what, what comes afterwards. So I think it's really interesting to have that more in-depth view uh, of the, the full situation, you know, that, that you can watch and absorb a lot of information out of the 10-minute uh, clip of it but uh, and, and take lessons from that. But, you know, really getting into the, the nitty-gritty, I guess, of what, what actually happened, what that person's experience was really like from their own words uh, is actually very captivating. Right. I, I've listened to the podcast, uh, you know, a number of times and just find it hard to turn off, frankly. Yeah, we, we try to keep the uh, the content compelling. We don't want it to be a college uh, lecture on physics to put people to sleep. Um, but we don't want to sensationalize it either, if that makes any sense. Uh, I want to make sure the people who are in these encounters or stories are told respectfully and thoroughly. And I think um, I think part of the reason it works with me as the host is that I spent like 30 years plus or minus in law enforcement interviewing a lot of people who've just been in a pretty serious um running with someone, maybe with a bad guy, or interviewing bad guys who were just in an inter, inter, uh, excuse me, interviewing bad guys who've been in a run-in with maybe a good person who's defended themselves successfully. And so I have a little bit of insight on the, the goings-on. I, I already know, for the most part, assuming the police are doing their job correctly, what's going to happen when they show up, plus or minus, depending on where you are. I talked to um, a guy named Marty the other day. He's our most recent uh, podcast. Absolutely fascinating stuff. He was in uh, North Georgia in a small town and had to defend himself with a firearm against a guy who just run over his girlfriend wow. and was then trying to hit him, yeah. And, you know, we, we touched on one thing I thought was really important I think a lot of folks don't think about. I think you think if, oh, if I'm in Georgia, if I'm in South Carolina, Arizona, Texas, um, and I, I have to use a firearm to defend myself, well, I'm in friendly territory, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a blue state or whatever, or a pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment state, so I should be okay. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe not. Depends on... The prosecutor depends on the investigator and their view on the Second Amendment and whether or not they like or dislike the idea of private citizens having guns. Not all cops and prosecutors are friendly to the Second Amendment, unfortunately. So, yeah, that was just one of the many, many stories we've had so far that was was interesting. And then I think the nuance is really what catches my attention. Things like different states, different potentially different laws, different uh, different outcomes. And to hear this guy, Marty, tell his story is absolutely harrowing. Uh, but he made it out. Shot the guy, uh, threw a windshield in the neck, and of course the guy lived because of course. <laughs> right. Um, what before we get into more stories? Because I do want to hear some more examples of of the kind of stories that you've told on the podcast thus far. Um, but what do you take away from your time as an investigator, as law enforcement, um, when it comes to making that transition to being a podcast host, to interviewing people in that context? What are the what are some of the things you've seen as like similarities? What are some differences? How how is your experience uh, in law enforcement really informed uh, this new career that you're now going down in media? Well, I think one of the things that surprises some people is I'm not blanket across the board pro LE. I'm I'm pro LE when they do their jobs correctly. I'm pro LE when they do uh, what they're supposed to do and they follow the rules and they follow the uh, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. Uh, for me, I think coming out of doing a lot of interviews, one of my assignments was along the border, um, going down and cleaning up cases where they found somebody with a ton of dope, not a ton necessarily, although we've had a ton, 
you know, a whole bunch of cocaine or, or meth or whatever in their vehicle. And now I have to go in there, sit down with somebody who knows that talking to me is probably a terrible idea and convince them that talking to me is the right move and elicit information from them they don't want to give me. That's a very different kind of interview than what I'm doing on the podcast, obviously. The podcast, I'm trying to elicit the story from someone, uh, but in a, in a friendly environment where they know I'm not going to ask a gotcha question. I'm not going to, I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm a podcast host. So I want them to feel comfortable telling me and therefore our audience uh, what happened and exactly how it went for them. So I think in a way, the interviewing part of it for me uh, helped with my now podcast host career. Uh, I think seeing sort of every layer of society, because with, with our work, we dealt with CEOs all the way down to street level drug dealers. So I saw a broad cross section of society. So I can, I think I can relate to pretty much anyone on any level and find and build a rapport, rapport building, again, being a huge part of successfully interviewing anyone in law enforcement. They don't, they don't connect with you. If they don't uh, identify with you in some kind of way, the odds of them feeling comfortable talking to you and letting, letting you in on whatever the, you know, their inner monologue is, is pretty slim. So yeah, rapport building and just uh, understanding having a sort of emotional intelligence, I think, that I possess that is helpful. And I'm sure that was also informed by my career in law enforcement. But for me, not having um, not having an office to go, to go to, you're in the palatial active self-protection podcast studio and it's, uh, deep within my wife's walk-in <laughs> closet. And so I don't have a boss per se. John's my best friend. He, I certainly respect him as, as uh, owner of the company, but we will sort of have a boss-employee relationship, not having a, an office to go to every day not having core hours, not having a certain uniform to wear is very strange. And I'm still getting used to it. I just retired at the end of June, but uh, the transition has gone pretty well. And I've traveled a lot in the last three months, uh, both for, you know, for vacation and for active self-protection, been to Kansas, been to South Dakota. And uh, it's just, it's been a bit of a whirlwind, but everything's going really well. And I think the podcast is doing, is going in the right direction. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to see how those skills from law, you know, interviewing and laws enforcement translate uh, you know, over and really sound a lot like the kind of skills you need to be, um, uh, you know, a journalist in, in my experience, you know, you got to be able to get somebody to, to trust you in order for them to tell you the information that's important or that matters, uh, that you need to know, or that you think people ought to know. And, um, right. So that, that's fascinating. Well, can you give us a little more insight into some of these stories, uh, that you've, already heard that people can go and, you know, listen to right now, I guess, on the, the, the show, what, what are some of the most interesting, uh, uh, encounters that you've done, uh, an episode on that you've done a deep dive on? Well, so far I'm, I'm spoiled for choice as far as what's the most interesting because there are other, I think they're all fascinating. Um, I think probably the most, the most compelling one for some people, um, from the law enforcement side would be, I talked to Greg Johnson, who's a retired sergeant out of San Diego, California. He and I worked together on some task forces out there. He was involved in a um, investigation to a child molester in Lakeside, California. Child molester had um, evidently spilt the beans to his girlfriend that he was doing what he was doing. His excuse for that was that he was going to sell these images of her children being molested on the internet for rent money. And that just gives you a little insight into the mind of someone like that. That's He thought that would be, oh, so it's okay. Yeah. So Craig and his partner, um, Ali Perez, who was a detective, go to the door of this guy's apartment to confront him about this. He's doing knock and talk. They've done all the requisite checks beforehand to make sure you know, it was as safe as it could possibly be. 
They knock on the door. They say sheriff's department, and they're met with 308 rounds through the door. Uh, the detective took two rounds, uh, was bleeding pretty badly. The, my, my buddy Craig, who was a sergeant on the scene, took a round of 308 through the door frame. It entered his uh, vest on the left side, exited the right side. And unfortunately, and, and I won't say too much more about it because you want you to watch the show or listen to the show, obviously, but um, he went to call for help and say, you know, deputy down, shots fired. And what he didn't know at the time was the lapel mic up on his um, up on his lapel or in front of him. The little cord that attaches to his radio had been severed by that round. And so he was calling out for help to absolutely no one. No one could hear him. Wow. Um, and they ended up on that on that balcony. It was the second floor balcony for an extended period of time, having a shootout with this guy they couldn't even see. And uh, I think the aftermath of that one is absolutely it's harrowing, but it's very compelling to listen to. Uh, another one I, I really enjoyed making was uh, uh, with a gentleman from Orlando, Florida, who was at work at a labor uh, like a day labor site where people come in in the morning to get, get employed. So this site was sort of go between, you know, between construction companies and labor type places and employees who wanted to work. So he's in the, in the office that morning, everyone had kind of cleared out all the jobs and give it out. And he's doing some paperwork and in comes one of their regular workers who they knew. And, you know, everyone liked him. He was a good worker. They wave hi, good morning. He doesn't pay much attention. The guy walks around behind the counter and starts hacking at a, co-worker of the machete he produced out of out of a bag and the story really revolves around our guy turning i mean concealed weapons carrier turning to face this guy and the time between when he turned and realized what was happening and that guy being on top of him with a machete and getting his gun out and getting to work was probably two seconds but that part of the interview takes about 10 minutes um, so that's how in depth we get with uh, with what what happens during these. Yeah, that, that's actually been and one of my I, favorite uh, episodes as well. Uh, yeah, James yeah that that story is incredible, and the way that you guys work through it, the way that he explains what happened and step by step what he was thinking and and feeling, and uh, it just uh, is extremely captivate, captivating, and, and it has, I think, a lot of value for somebody who is carrying a gun for self-defense and understanding what an actual life-threatening situation is really like uh, to go through because, you know, thankfully most of us don't have to go through that um, and hopefully right. never will. Um, but if the idea is that you're preparing yourself for a situation like that by carrying a gun or by having a gun in your home, uh, whatever the case may be, if you, if you have a gun for self-defense, you ought to know, what it's actually like to use a gun in self-defense or, or, you know, any other sort of weapon. Uh, these sorts of encounters are, are uh, really important to study and to be aware of for your own uh, understanding of how you would defend yourself in these situations and what it would really uh, be like. Obviously, you know, until you experience it, I'm sure you can't really get a full grasp of it, but you can hear from people who have and get a much better understanding of what really happens. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. People who watch Active Self-Protection kind of fall into two camps that watch the main channel. Uh, a lot of people are there for information. They want to um, hear what John has to say about a situation, about what John has to say about how it was handled properly or improperly. There's a lot of folks that just kind of like the content generally, um, you know, fans of violence. People like violence, and I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. People watch action movies, you know, where people get blown up and, and shot with machine guns and stuff. 
uh, I think that the part of the audience, a sizable part of the audience that is there to get better or to seek some training who maybe don't maybe live somewhere where there's not a lot of training potential, a lot of training opportunities, a smaller town, what have you. I think those people are the ones that are going to come over to the podcast and listen because they're getting insight that I don't, I just don't know if anyone else is doing what we're doing as far as interviewing in depth, interviewing the people that have been in these kind of kinds of encounters. But I think people who are listening are listening for that reason for the most part, and not so much for the uh, compelling nature of the content. Although I, I listened back to a couple of them and, and it's, it's pretty compelling. I'm not going to lie. What's compelling is not me, but our guest uh, telling the story. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, I've, I've listened through them uh, with the intention of just, you know, dipping in to see what it's like. Um, and then just being, ca- you know, so engrossed in what is happening in the story that, you know, I can't turn it off and I'm not, Uh, I'm not not a huge podcast listener, uh, which I know is maybe weird because I'm literally hosting a podcast right now as uh, you listen to this. I don't know. I don't have time. I don't know about you. I'm I'm pretty busy. So, yeah, listening to stuff and watching YouTube, I just can't. I just don't have time for Um, it anymore. And and so, you know, I I don't I'm not somebody who listens to a bunch of podcasts, but this is legitimately one that I that I actually listen to and not just because, uh, you know, I'm on it in one of the segments. Um, although that does help. I will, I will tell you, sure. uh, that does it incentivize better, me sure. to listen to the show. Although I hate listening to myself right. talk, probably like most people. So, you know, uh, yeah, you give and take, but, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's another yeah. aspect of the show, obviously, um, that I, you, we can touch on a little bit here. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm on the show, um, at the end, we do like a, uh, an, uh, news update basically that where we go over the latest gun news. Um, and what, what, you know, what was it uh, that you guys uh, found valuable about that concept? What, it, like, what, it, what do you try to accomplish with, with that segment where I come on and, and talk about, you know, whatever the latest uh, uh, news is like, well, I guess, what do you, what do you see as the value add from that? Oh, I'll tell you, that's e- That's easy. Um, you know, when, when uh, Neil Widener, our chief marketing officer who you knew, I got a hold of me and said, Hey, talk to this Katowski guy. And I'm like, oh, I guess I didn't really you know, kind of understand how that was going to work. Or was anybody going to stick around and listen to that? It's kind of, kind of a little dry content. Uh, once I met you and heard how compelling your reporting is, I knew immediately it would be, it would be absolutely a perfect compliment to round out the show, like an after dinner mint, if you will. And I, I could see that uh, our conversations would, um, some people wouldn't stay tuned, but the ones who wanted to hear about what's going on now and hear some actual down the middle reporting on firearms would, would stay tuned. And I've heard from more than one person, um, that I know personally who listens to the show who said how pleasantly surprised they were. There was more content after the main content was done and how fascinating they found those talks to be. Like I said, I think people will tune into the podcast who are serious about self-defense and they're serious about learning what it's like to be in a self-defense encounter. And I think at the end of that, having you come on and talk to the folks about what's going on with the NRA, what's going on in politics, what's going on, you know, with the second amendment all over the country is absolutely, it's the perfect marriage of, of two things. It's, we're like a Reese's peanut butter cup. <laughs> see, I think it's what I'm getting. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it works really well too, honestly. Um, uh, because I think that you have a very similar approach and mindset to, to me uh, in terms of, you know, how you look at, at the news and how you look at politics. And, uh, you know, you seem like you want to 
you take that reasonable approach, the more sober approach, the less uh, yelly, <laughs> um, screamy approach, I guess, right, uh, to to the news, to the politics. Uh, not that it's not important, obviously, um, but right. uh, you, you have a sort of uh, calm demeanor about you that uh, and you want to hear from uh, somebody who's not trying to necessarily sell you their point of view, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know when it became... I was never in debate club. Okay. I grew up in around DC, Montgomery County, Maryland. So I was around politics my whole life. My dad was in the Pentagon for a period of time. Uh, so I've always had politics, at least on the periphery of my, my conscious. And then in the early nineties, I became very interested in politics and I'm sort of, I'm more to the right than the left, but I'm not one of these red tie, blue tie, uh, people. And I, I hate the idea that sometime in my adult life, the, regardless of the topic, becomes political is you have to is people winning an argument mm. when i say winning in quotation marks because i i think winning a debate or winning an argument it shouldn't be the goal of an argument the goal of an argument or debate should be for me to present my positions to you in a level-headed logical linear fashion so you understand why i believe what i believe and then i shut up and i listen to you tell me your thoughts and feelings on a particular issue and maybe you'll say something that might might alter my perception a little or be a way I hadn't thought about it before. And maybe I'll say something that you might consider you hadn't considered before. And maybe we'll come a little closer on this issue rather than me winning, you know, you know, Ben Shapiro's show. He always makes fun of the idea that um, the titles of his videos are like Ben Shapiro smack demolishes liberals on this or all caps. And I, I, I got to say, I can't, the political environment is so bad. I stopped watching the news in, in January of this year of 2021. I just turned it off. I couldn't anymore. I'm slowly getting back into the news cycle. And I got to say, most of the things that are in the news uh, don't pertain to me. I don't need to know most of this stuff. When it comes to the Second Amendment, that's information that everyone should be interested in, whether or not you own a gun. And so I think that's one of the reasons why this, why having you on uh, during our shows is perfect marriage, because it's it's a natural, it's a natural progression. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I feel you there on on. The news that, you know, to me, it seems like uh, and as somebody who works in the news business, right, runs my own publication now, um, I, like I have a uh, maybe a, a deeper insight into how exactly the news business works. And one thing I think it's important to, to remember and that I try to tell my family and friends uh, when it comes to, you know, political news coverage is that um, especially when it comes to like opinion uh, news coverage, where it's focused on some person's, you know, take on everything, uh, just generally right. whatever they think about everything. Um, you have to realize that news, uh, the att attention to the news is a cyclical thing for the most part, especially with political news, but really with news generally, right? So Donald Trump was a very polarizing guy. He was very... Uh, flashy, entertaining type. I mean, he came from the entertainment business, right? Uh, you know, whatever you think about him, his politics or his personality, like there was a lot of attention attached to him. Um, and now that he's not president anymore, there, that is much less so. And, and so this, uh, there's already a cycle in, in news attention that surrounds the the elections, right? So election years, especially presidential election years, tend to gain, they tend to garner more eyeballs 
uh, for political news than non-election years in the United States. Uh, and it's fairly obvious, like when you think about it, right? And obviously, people are not paying as close attention to what's happening uh, in politics when there's no election, when they haven't, there's really not much they can do about it anyway. Um, and uh, so you have these, this sort of natural news cycle. You see this with political groups as well, and their, their fundraising and spending follows the election right. cycles too. But so with news, the, the way you make money, most of these places make money. Now, the Reload right makes money from people who subscribe to it. It's not necessarily driven by uh, direct, you know, the number of clicks that we get. Um, and I right. think that that is an advantage for us because we don't have to rely so much on chasing eyeballs all the time, uh, which is how you get a lot of uh, websites that have, you know, really trashy content that's not very good, that gets churned out. They have to publish 100 stories a day to get the traffic levels right. they need to get the advertising revenue that they need to survive. And so that leads to lower standards in a lot of cases. Um, and uh, worse journalism. Uh, the same is true when it comes to you know cable cable news. How they want as many people to watch as possible. That's the business model. Uh, it's not necessarily some conspiracy or cabal that that controls any of this. It's just the nature of uh, business. Think about how a cable news company makes its money. It's from uh, people watching it so that they can advertise to. This is really the very similar model to online news or traditional newspapers. Um, now they, you know, the the subscription model is not a new thing, obviously, in, in business in uh, in news. But uh, the popular model for since the internet came along has been, you know, almost entirely advertising based and based on getting clicks, getting attention. So what happens when there's not as much actual newsworthy stuff going on, right? Uh, they have to pretend like anything that's happening is very newsworthy. And so a lot of the easy shorthanded way of doing that is to try and make everything extremely outrageous all the time. Uh, so everything that happens is the latest outrage of the day because, um, you know, that'll get people to pay attention. Uh, in theory, and you want people to pay attention to you so you can show them advertising so you can make money. And so um, yeah. that's why you tend to have news cycles in off you know, election years that focus on uh, that, that try to make a big deal out of things that really no one's going to remember five days from now. Um, yeah, I don't so. know if you remember, like when there, there was a Fox News alert or a CBS special report, it used to mean something really important, like the president got shot or there was a plane crash or something crazy. And now it's like, dung, dung. Uh, it's 78 degrees right. out, you know, back to our regular schedule. It's, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Well, now important. it's like I think another it's thing 78 degrees out and it's the Democrats fault for that. Uh, for the, right. right. You know, yeah, or whatever. Was, or, or the that Republicans. Was, fault. That, was a running, that was a running joke. It was a running joke for me and one of my one of my partners back in San Diego when, when I think when George W. Bush was president was like, ah, my coffee maker didn't start this morning automatically. Thanks a lot, George right. W. Bush. Uh, and, and it was the same with yeah. Obama. It was kind of a running joke. Like not everything comes down to who the president is. I mean, in fact, we, we go off on a whole civics lesson here, but who the president is shouldn't matter nearly as much as it does or as people perceive it that's to true. be. But unfortunately, we're, and we're in that position. The president should that's be true when it comes largely, to guns, too, uh, honestly, uh, yeah. like, you know, you look at. You see this in gun coverage a lot, um, too, frankly, uh, because you will get a lot of coverage of bills that get introduced by 
backbench members of Congress that uh, either are radically anti-gun or are super pro-gun, but also have literally no chance of ever getting passed. Um, but right. they get a lot of attention uh, online in the uh, you know gun community as either this is yes. this is like the worst thing ever, and the the republic is ending because this bill is to- is has been introduced without any like <laughs> consideration as to whether or not this bill has any chance of passing. Yeah, and, they, uh, and or, they have they have no chance of passing, right. and that's the thing. That's why I said civics civics should be so much more important than it is. It used to be a big deal when I was young. You know, by the time I was in junior high school, I understood the two houses of Congress, the three branches of government, how they worked, and checks and balances, and you know what what ought to be a federal issue versus a state or a local yeah. issue. And I don't think most people understand any of that. No, anymore. not younger folks. I don't think they're taught that. So when they hear um, Slappy McMillan from you know Southern California representative uh, introduces the bill to ban all guns forever and ever, Amen. They're like, Oh my God, this is crazy. How can this be? And they not knowing, like you said. This thing's never going to see the right. committee. It's never going to be taken seriously. So, you know, if they if they knew that, maybe they if they were educated, uh, they could discern a little bit more what's important and what's not in yeah. the news cycle. But unfortunately, and, that's kind of And I think that there's again that business incentive to do that when you're uh, covering gun news because uh, you know, or or you're a gun rights uh, you know adv- advocacy organization uh, because it, right. it you're trying to get people to. Um, pay attention to you to give you money or to to read your site to get to get you ad revenue, um, and it's it's misleading and it's dishonest, honestly, you know, frankly. Uh, so that's that's why I I try to operate the reload, you know, in a different way by not covering these, right. uh, you know, what the latest whatever outrage du jour over some backbench Democrats bill about, you know, right. yeah, banning all semi-automatic guns or something. It's like, ugh, you got right. it. And it, it's not to say that you never talk about those bills or, or that it's completely illegitimate to ever discuss them or be concerned about what the implications of them are, you know, if the, especially if it's something where like, oh, this represents like maybe the party's moving in a certain direction. Um, even though this bill's not going to pass, it still matters. Like, you know, the, the, uh, background check bills. That's a, re- a reach. Sure, like, but but the background, like the background check bills, passed the House right earlier uh, this year, and um, they're not going to pass the Senate. But it's not illegitimate to like they're they're at least more likely to become law. Uh, and even even the crazy proposals, like I, it's not wrong to discuss them or to talk about them or to talk about the desires no, of their backers. But to pretend that they're going to become law, this Congress, like that's where, uh, you know, I think things start to get out of whack and start to become misleading. Like if you're trying to freak people out and make them concerned that, uh, you know, the, the government's about to kick down their door and take their guns because this random bill got introduced somewhere that has no pa- chance of passing, you know, that's, that's where you're mis- you're doing a disservice to, uh, your audience, um, to your donors, to whoever. And, uh, you know, that, that's where I try to provide a bit more context to what's, what's happening or, or a bit more nuance to, to the reality of the situations. And, um, I think that's important, uh, to have someone that you can trust. Cause like, think of, think of all the times, you know, really popular, uh, pro gun people out there have told you that, 
you know, the, there's about to be mass gun confiscation tomorrow and it right. hasn't come true. Or this bill, this crazy bill is going to pass. It's like, oh, well, then they'll just say, well, it's because you you paid attention or you gave money to whatever group. That's why. And it's like, no, right. that's not why you were just misleading people the whole but, time. But to your earlier point, I mean, you know, you were saying, oh, well, this doesn't mean this is going to happen this year. But the fact that this party or that party is moving in yeah. a direction or seems moving in a direction, because, yeah, if, you, if you'd ask somebody uh, 15 years ago, if there'd be avowed socialists, you know, numerous avowed socialists in the United States Congress, they would have laughed you out of the room. But that came, that sort of thing comes on slowly but sure. surely. Not that they don't have a right to be uh, Congress people, uh, you know, knock yourself out. It's not socialism, not for me. But um, I, I think these things do happen. You might say they happen progressively. <laughs> there you go. That's that is good. Um, and yeah, and then like, you know, Joe Biden, right, the president, uh, he wants to do a lot of radical things, according to what he says. Uh, now, he's not going to be able yeah. to uh, with the makeup of Congress the way it is. And it's important to talk about both of those things, in my view, so that people really have a proper understanding of the situation. Yes, Joe Biden does want to do all these things. He said all this stuff. You know, he wants to repeal the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. He wants to institute a new assault weapons ban that that would have a, a uh, you know, a, a buyback component to it. Um, it's sort of a half step away from confis outright confiscation. Right. You know, he wants to do all this stuff, but he he can't actually accomplish those things is another important point, or at least it's very questionable as to whether he, he can right. actually get any of that. He's probably not going to get any legislation through Congress unless his party picks up seats in the next election, which is extremely your, unlikely. Your lips to so God's ears. Yeah, let's hope, it's let's hope it's so. just something where, like, I, I believe in not trying to sensationalize things beyond reality and trying to give people proper context. And I think that's important. Um, and I think you get, you do that too on the podcast with these, um, uh, you know, self-defense situations. Cause there are plenty of misinformation about how self-defense situations actually go in person. And, and I think that, you know, the, the podcast does uh, the same kind of service by telling people not some sensationalized view of what happens, but, uh, but being honest with how it really goes. Uh, but speaking of which, what are the what are some of the uh, the the podcasts you have coming up here? Oh, geez. Uh, so our our podcast coming up to actually today. I'm sorry. That's Wednesday, October 13th as we're recording mm -hmm. this. So in a few minutes here, we have one coming out um, with a new friend of mine named Marty. He's the guy that had the um, run in with the domestic abuse guy out behind a restaurant and tried to intervene and ended up his girlfriend got run over and he had to shoot this guy through the windshield. That's coming mm -hmm. out today. And then next week, um, we're talking to a friend of mine, Mike Doyle, who is uh, a police officer and an agency to be named not mm -hmm. later at all. And he's also the host of a tactical tangents podcast. He's going to tell us a bunch of stuff about Ellie interacting with uh, armed people, which you do a lot in Arizona. You know, Ellie law enforcement interacts with tons of armed people and it's a, much different experience sure. uh, for both sides during a traffic stop, for example, in Arizona than it is in, say, Massachusetts or D.C. or New York or California, where, you know, probably once a day as a law enforcement officer in, in Arizona, you're going to stop someone and go, hey, just so you know, I have a concealed firearm. For the most part, it's like, all right, cool. Thanks for telling me. That's as far as that mm -hmm. goes, which is which is why I think it's still free America. I hope it stays that way. Um, that's how it should be. Uh, the police shouldn't have any problem with armed citizenry as long as they're not committing crimes. Um, but that one's pretty interesting. He, he goes uh, that's a deep dive on 
uh, armed uh, bank robber who ended up assaulting his canine dog, his, his uh, dog Blitz, and stabbing him oh, numerous God. times during an apprehension. So, yeah. And uh, we have a bunch of new stuff lined up, uh, none of which I can talk about yet because they're not done deals. We're kind of week to week right now. We're still pretty young as a show. So I don't have a ton of backbench for guests, but uh, God's providing guests one week at a time. So plus I got you every week. So I know it's going to be at least a part. Yes. Um, and obviously people can reach out to you uh, if they, if they have a story they want to share for the podcast, but absolutely. Yep. Mike, Mike at active Mike at active com. I'm sorry. It's such a long email. <laughs> I didn't pick it. They just gave it to me. Fortunately, it's not Michael to be worse. What, so yeah, uh, uh, if you have, so where, if, yeah, yeah, so if people have a story that that's in line with uh, what you guys are covering over there, they should reach out. But where where can people Absolutely. find the podcast if they want to listen to it? Uh, we're not available on every single outlet. We're on all the big ones: so Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast. Um, and if you you know if you have a podcast service that you really love that you're married to and you want it on there, absolutely email me. Uh, and we'll see if we can get the podcast new because I'm, I'm still new to this. I was a I was a stupid federal agent until four months ago. And now I'm trying to figure this out. So be patient. Um, if there is a platform we, we don't have it on. Yeah. Hit me up at Mike at active self-protection. And uh, we'll see what we can do. It just got added to the active self-protection extra channel, right? Yeah, I was going to say we're, we're now on YouTube. Um, we'll see if that lasts. We're not sure what kind of traction that'll get. But yeah, it's going to be on every Tuesday, there'll be a new episode on the Active Self-Protection Extra YouTube channel. So, yeah, look for that. I mean, a lot of people under 30, YouTube's their whole oh, yeah. world. So hopefully uh, they'll start listening. Yeah, over there you can well. also listen to this podcast on, on YouTube and all of your favorite podcasting apps as well. So uh, we're right there with you. But um, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you giving us uh, your perspective and and uh, your experience and, and hearing about this uh, this new show that I think a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in. Right on. Thanks for having me. All right. That's all we've got for this week's episode. Remember, if you buy a membership today, you'll get this a day early. You get exclusive access a whole day early. It's wonderful. Plus, you'll get access to all the exclusive posts that we have, including Jake's brilliant breakdown of what's going on with the NRA safety and training program, what the spending looks like, and what that could mean going forward. Uh, but that's it. That's all we've got for you. Uh, I will see you again next week. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones.